Well, these three books are sometimes called the uh, prison apostles because they were all written from prison. And it's kind of interesting here that uh, books written from prison could be filled with such talk about uh, freedom and love. But uh, just as evidence for this, here in Ephesians, Paul would say, I urge you then, I who am a prisoner, because I serve the Lord, live a life that measures up to the standard God set when he called you. Okay, and then in Ephesians 6, for the sake of the gospel, I am an ambassador, though now I am in prison. Okay, Paul had a, a rough life, at least by worldly standards. In Philippians, as a result, the whole palace guard and all the others here know that I am in prison because I am a servant of Christ. And in Colossians, at the same time, pray also for us so that God will give us a good opportunity to preach his message about the secret of Christ, for that is why I am now in prison. Okay, so uh, these books written from prison. And again, you could go so many different directions. And as I uh, read through all of these books uh, here in preparation for this Bible study, I realized we have quoted extensively in this Bible study from these three books. All right, so I want to emphasize two main points from these three books, which really tie together uh, quite well. First is something that uh, we'll just call cosmic conflict theology. Uh, This is so important to me because I think it... uh, Um, gives us uh, so much insight into why our world is the way it is. And it just runs all the way through the Bible, and it seems sometimes that we just uh, miss it in incorporating this into our worldview. Let's just mention the few verses here in these three books that point to this. In Ephesians, God did what he had proposed and made known to us the secret plan he had already decided to complete by means of Christ. This plan which God will complete when the time is right, is to bring all creation together. Everything, notice not just on earth, everything in heaven and on earth with Christ as head. And we might wonder, uh, what is, I mean, everything has been just fine in heaven this whole time, right? It's only the earth where there's been a problem. But Paul would uh, kind of reemphasize and add to this here in Colossians. Through the sun then, God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. God made peace through his son's blood on the cross. And we've talked extensively about what that means. How did he make peace? And so, but notice, brought back to himself all things both on earth and in heaven. All right, now just the concept here of God making peace even in heaven uh, brings us to a very significant verse here in Revelation. It talks about war in heaven. Jesus made peace on the cross. But notice, there was war. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, who fought back with his angels. But the dragon was defeated, and he and his angels were not allowed to stay in heaven any longer. The huge dragon was thrown out. That ancient serpent named the devil. Who's that? Or Satan. That deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and all his angels with him. Okay, so uh, the Bible describes we need to put everything in the context of a war that began in heaven. And it's interesting here, the the Greek here for war in uh, Revelation, polemos, uh, which we get uh, polemics, which means the art or practice of argumentation or controversy. We get the word politics from this. So in other words, this was not a war with uh, tanks being driven around heaven and lightning bolts being zapped back and forth. This was a political campaign. Okay, And I think uh, if we really try to build a case for all of this, what really was it that went 
on in heaven. It really was uh, lies, deception, uh, all that centered around uh, the kind of person that God is. Okay, that's the, that's the heart of the great controversy. Okay, again, just uh, these other verses here in these three books that point towards something going on beyond just uh, the plan of salvation for you and I. In Ephesians 3, God, who is the creator of all things, kept his secret hidden through all the past ages in order that at the present time, by means of the church, notice what happens, the angelic rulers and powers in the heavenly world might learn of his wisdom in all its different forms. Now, interesting here uh, to think of uh, an onlooking universe, angels learning something about God by the experience of planet Earth. And in Peter, it even mentions that about the good news, these are things that even the angels would like to understand. Okay, but again, if we go all the way back to the beginning, a war, a great controversy in heaven centered around the kind of person God is and uh, that Satan deceived even some of these angels that went with him, that it would appear God is even working to settle the loyal angels into the truth about the kind of person he is. Okay, again, just in Ephesians, Paul would say, put on all the armor that God gives you so that you will be able to stand up against the devil's evil tricks. Notice, who's our enemy? We are not fighting against human beings, even though Paul's in prison. Hey, that's not the enemy. But against the wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world, the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of the dark age. I mean, does that that not bring us back to the very beginning of the problem? So put on God's armor now. Then when the evil day comes, you will be able to resist the enemy's attacks. And after fighting to the end, you will still hold your ground. Okay, it's... uh, Again, important that our view not become small and just on uh, you and I, because actually when we incorporate the larger picture of things, that does help us understand why you and I are in the predicament that we're in. Okay, notice, uh, I think this is incredibly good news that three times Paul in these books would express, you know, where are we right now? Okay, those that God has won to his side. Notice, in our union with Christ Jesus, he raised us up with him, to rule with him in the heavenly world. Now, I would interpret this to mean we are now raised up with him, to rule with him and with all of those um, who are loyal with God. And as further evidence in Philippians, we, however, are citizens of heaven. Isn't that incredible? We are now citizens of heaven. But notice, we eagerly await for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come from heaven. Okay, we are now citizens, okay, but we wait for him to come. And in Ephesians, so then you Gentiles are not foreigners or strangers any longer. You are now citizens together with God's people and members of the family of God. So I think uh, we should have the mindset that we are now citizens. We are now members of the loyal family and we are working with God to bring bring about the resolution of this great controversy. So let's um, come back here to this uh, cosmic conflict. And uh, for some, it seems that uh, it's felt, well, this is just uh, an invention of the last 150 years. And this is why I think it's so important. Uh, I know some of you have had uh, Sigby Tongstad as a uh, teacher of religion here, and uh, he has a fantastic paper that uh, describes the early Christian church and their view of a cosmic conflict. And uh, this comes from the writing of Celsus, a very famous philosopher, And he attacked in around 175, 177 A.D. the Christian theology. 
Now this is just, I mean, the, the New Testament, you know, was written in 50 to 70, 80 AD. And so uh, Celsus here, this philosopher, comes along uh, no more than 100 years later and attacks the prevailing Christian view. Okay, so uh, this was the view of the early church. Now, this is what Celsus didn't like about what the Christians believed. Their utter stupidity of the Christians can be illustrated in any number of ways, but especially with their misreading of the divine enigmas and their insistence that there exists a being opposed to God, whom they know by the name devil or Satan. Uh, In Celsus' view, the all-important belief is that God is sovereign and all-powerful. And how could an all-powerful God allow for opposition? I mean, he'd zap him in a second. He has no solution to the problem of evil, but it is inconceivable to this uh, philosopher that there could be a being opposed to God. And he would say, it is blasphemy to say that when the greatest God indeed wishes to confer some benefit upon men, he has a power which is opposed to him and so is unable to do it. Okay, so he thinks this is ridiculous. Now, we wouldn't even have these words of Celsus if it weren't for the fact that about 70 years later, a person by the name of Origen, this apparently had been rather damaging, what Celsus had wrote. And so Origen uh, picked up the writings of Celsus and we have all of his writings thanks to Origen and he described another way of looking at this. Origen's known as the supreme theologian of free will. And when we think about great controversy, it is intimately linked to free will and the character of God, as I'll explain. And uh, it's very interesting that Origen would validate interpretation of things we've talked about a lot in this Bible study, such as that Ezekiel 28 is referring to Satan, Isaiah 14 referring to Satan, and that this was the view of the early Christian church. Okay, and uh, uh, Sigby would uh, kind of summarize some of this by saying Origen not only maintains an unremitting focus on how Satan has misrepresented God, but he also expresses the thrust of the satanic activity in ways that are difficult to surpass. And just uh, listen to some quotes here of Origen. He would say, People are dragged down by this wicked demon and are drawn away in their soul from God, and notice, and the right conception of him and from his word. Okay, so in his view, it really was all about Satan misrepresenting the kind of person God is. That's the essence of the great controversy. And Sigby would, would summarize all of this. The problem facing the human family and the core issue in the cosmic conflict theology center on the character of God. That is the central core issue. And just one more quote. This is so good. Evil arose in the context of freedom. There could not be evil in the absence of freedom. And yet freedom only provides the opportunity and is not the cause of evil. Freedom is the value that God will not surrender even in the face of sin. Unlike the God envisioned by Celsus, the God who is revealed in Jesus is a God who values freedom so highly that he allows precisely the things that Celsus has declared to be logically impossible. In Celsus' outlook, freedom is not understood or imagined. While in the Christian account, freedom is seamlessly tied to the character of God. God has, as it were, taken upon himself to pay the price for freedom rather than solve the problem of sin by abolishing it. And when we just think about God creating Adam and Eve, and we know that there was a sin problem going on before because, of course, we have that uh, serpent in the tree, but he gave them the planet. It's your planet. 
And he didn't say, uh, you know what, if you step out of bounds, uh, I'll take your freedom away. You're not allowed to rebel. He gave them absolute freedom. Okay, they misused that freedom. So uh, three points I'll make here about cosmic conflict theology. The first is, as we've said, that it revolves all around the character of God. And uh, let's just go back to the problem of sin as it involved the human family. And we talked about Satan at the tree. And notice that the very first lie at the tree was about freedom. Now, the snake was the most cunning animal that the Lord God had made. And the snake asked the woman, did God really tell you not to eat fruit from any tree in the garden? And of course, God had just said to Adam and Eve, you may eat the fruit of any tree in the garden. And Satan implies here, boy, you know what, Eve, it's really a shame you're not free. Can't eat any fruit in this garden. It's too bad that God is not a God of freedom. Okay, and the implication is laid that God is not a God of freedom. Now, what is really, I mean, the only word for it here is satanic, is that if God were not a God of freedom, would Satan be in the tree? If God were not a God of freedom, would he even allow Eve the opportunity to go and hear Satan's version, twisted version of the story at the tree? I mean, the very fact that he's there would support that God is, God, is a God of freedom, even though this is Satan's first accusation against God. Okay, but of course, as the conversation goes on, the snake replied to Eve's words, that's not true. You will not die. In other words, Eve, God has lied to you. God is not trustworthy. God said that because he knows that when you eat it, you will be like God and know what is good and what is bad. And so what really happened at the tree was Adam and Eve believed a lie about the kind of person that God is. And the very next thing that happens, God comes for a walk in the garden and of course they're hiding in the bushes. Now, certainly their picture of God hiding in the bushes was not that God would eventually spend nine months in the womb and die on a cross. That was not their picture of God. And the entire Old Testament is a record of people trying to appease God. The gods are always angry. Okay, that's at the core of uh, paganism. All right, so we have this problem. And just one verse to summarize, many verses we could use in the Old Testament, it always comes down to one thing, God's words. My people are destroyed because they don't know me. Okay, a false conception of God. God's continually trying to clear up his reputation. And I don't know if you've uh, read this verse in uh, Ezekiel. In the message translation, it's so fantastic here where God would describe him. His people are in Babylonian captivity. His people who were to vindicate God's character, to reveal God's character to the world, to evangelize the world, are in Babylonian captivity. And, and this is how God would summarize it, their experience. Wherever they went, they gave me a bad name. People said, these are God's people, but they got kicked off his land. I suffered much pain over my holy reputation, which the people of Israel blackened in every country they entered. Therefore, tell Israel, I'm not doing this for you, Israel. I'm doing it for me to save my character, my holy name, which you've blackened in every country where you've gone. I'm going to put my great and holy name on display, the name that has been ruined in so many countries, the name that you blackened wherever you went. All right, so we should understand the arrival of God in human form in the context of a complete misunderstanding about what God is like. And so the words here in John 1, God finally comes. And the words here are really true. No one has ever seen God. I mean, up to that point, no one had really seen God at all. I mean, the, the rebellion is so serious in the Old Testament that really the conception of God was, was not at all close to the reality. Okay, but notice the words. The only son 
who is the same as God and is at the Father's side, he has made him known. God came in human form to clear up any and all misconceptions about what he's like in character. And the verse we've read in every Bible study, I think, because it's such a core here, John 17, night before Jesus would die, he would say, and eternal life means to know you. That is eternal life, to know what God is like in character, to know the truth about God, to enter into an intimate relationship with God. And he would describe his mission. On earth, I have fulfilled the mission you gave me to do. I revealed your name or character. That was his mission. And he vindicated God's character. God vindicated his own character by coming. Okay, so uh, the theology of Paul then ties beautifully into this. And I think we we view Paul as uh, uh, merely describing uh, how we're saved by the blood and saved by the wrath of God and so on. And we need to put all that together. But notice Paul's description as we described about the good news. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The good news, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness, the goodness, the character of God is revealed. That's the essence of the gospel message. Jesus revealed what God is like. That's the good news. And coming back to our uh, one of our books today, Philippians, Paul would say, I reckon everything, everything, as complete loss for the sake of what is so much more valuable, which is the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've thrown everything away. I consider it all as mere garbage so that I can gain Christ and be completely united to him. All I want is to know Christ. So when we want to summarize, this is the message of Paul. Well, this verse would have to come right up at the top. All I want is to know Christ. All right, so that's at the core. Now, there are so many different things we could bring up. Maybe I'll just bring up one important aspect of cosmic conflict theology that I think... uh, uh, sometimes we don't uh, incorporate into things, such as prayer. We need to consider our prayer life in the context of this war. And I love the example of Daniel. We, we talked about this, so I'll just mention it very briefly, but remember, Daniel prayed, and nothing happened. 21 days. And um, so finally an angel comes. Gabriel, Daniel, don't be afraid. God has heard your prayers. And Daniel might say, well, how come he's not answering them then? Ever since the first day you decided to humble yourself in order to understand. And notice, I have come in answer to your prayer. And then we get this description. Hey, Daniel, it's not like uh, your prayers have not been acted on. Let me just kind of pull the curtain back and explain to you a little bit what has happened since you prayed 21 days ago. And here's the description. The angel prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me, Gabriel, for 21 days. And then Michael, one of the chief angels, came to help me. Now I have to go back and fight the guardian angel of Persia. And after that, the guardian angel of Greece will appear. There is no one to help me except Michael, Israel's guardian angel. He is responsible for helping and defending me. Uh, This is such a key, I think. I mean, when we consider prayer, when we pray, we really are engaging in this cosmic conflict. We really are unleashing God's power and angelic forces to be involved, to actively intervene. And in this case, the angel is telling Daniel, you know what, your prayer, look what it's done. Look at what's going on behind the scenes. I mean, we've got angels fighting back and forth here. And as we described, this is ultimately a a battle that occurred within the mind of Cyrus. And should the Jews be allowed to uh, return or not? Okay, significant insight. One other point here. 
I, I, I think probably the number one thing, number one or two, that keeps people from God is the issue, the problem here of theodicy. A good God, a powerful God, and children that starve to death. I mean, that's, there's nothing uh, that's more troubling. And cosmic conflict thinking is really the only way I think we can adequately begin to even answer such issues. For example, just the book of Job. Now, did Job know what happened when everything went uh, bad, when uh, his uh, family died and everything was destroyed? Did he have any idea that there was this conversation between God and Satan and with all the angels there? I mean, he had no concept of the setting in which everything fell apart for him. Okay, and... Uh, just imagine if we could kind of pull the window, pull the curtain back on every bad thing that has ever happened. Okay, the book of Job is an in- invitation to uh, begin to understand things in that way. The book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk issues the theodicy challenge. God, I know you're good. How come things are such a mess? How come evil people always seem to gain the upper hand? Remember when we talked about Romans. Paul comes along and answers Habakkuk's theodicy question. Okay, the disciples clearly didn't get it because when they came across a blind man, notice, here are the two options for why bad things happen in the minds of the disciples. They asked him, Teacher, whose sin caused him to be born blind? Was it his own or his parents' sin? And I love Jesus' answer. His blindness has nothing to do with his sins or his parents' sin. Okay, go read the book of Job um, to understand why our world is the way it is. Okay, God is not punishing the man for his sins. God is not punishing the man for the sins of his parents. Okay, this world is a dangerous place. We are living uh, separated by this rebellion from God. Okay, bad things happen to good people. And uh, we need to begin to try to articulate why it is that that can happen. But we can only understand it if we're putting it in the setting of a war that is over the character of God. And just to illustrate that, let's go all the way back to the rebellion in heaven. We consider... How should God have responded to the mighty angel Lucifer who begins to entertain thoughts that are in contrast to God's character? What are his options? Well, of course, force was one. And we begin to think, wouldn't it have been better if God had just eliminated Lucifer? Would we be in the mess we're in today if God had just, I mean, the minute he sees Lucifer's mind going down the wrong uh, track, Lucifer just uh, drops over dead. Uh, any problem with God intervening in that way? And of course, uh, how would you feel if you were an angel? Angel, And all of a sudden, where's Lucifer? No, he died. Uh, how would you feel about God? Wouldn't you begin to serve him from fear if God goes around doing that to people who begin to rebel? So really force, I mean, first of all, this is not in the character of God to do this in the first place, okay? But it would not have solved the problem. What about arguments and claims? Uh, who knows what God did in heaven? I'm, maybe he, I'm sure he did gather the angels around and say, listen, I want to tell you that uh, what, God, what Satan is saying about me, it's not true. But would that solve the problem? Now we have a good example of this. Uh, Bill Clinton, a number of years ago. I did not have sex with that woman. And did everyone believe the claim when he said it? Now, maybe, uh, of course, in this case, it turned out not to be true. Okay, but let's just say that it was true. Would everyone believe the words of God when he said Satan is lying. Of course, God did use those words. Jesus came along and said as much. He said, you belong to your father, Satan. You want to carry out your father's desires. 
From the start, he was a murderer. He's never stood by the side of truth because there is no truth in him. Notice, when he tells a lie, he is speaking in character because he is a liar. And I love this translation. Indeed, the inventor of the lie. Singular. The lie over the character of God. Okay, so, uh, yes, God has made those claims. But the ultimately, God provided evidence. The evidence that would refute eternally the lies that Satan had alleged about the character of God. And when we talk about freedom, think about God limiting his own freedom to spend nine months in the womb and to become a human being. I mean, it's unthinkable. Uh, think about a God who allows his own children to torture him to death. Um, Satan's lies were thoroughly defeated at the cross. The angels seem to get the message. Okay, it just seems like uh, we need to get the message here on planet Earth that God is just like Jesus dying on Calvary and forgiving those who tortured him to death. That is what our God is like. Okay, and that is evidence. Evidence is the only way that you can defeat lies about your character. Okay, a quote that I like in this uh, regards. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one can cast a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only in Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are to be the prevailing power. So we have one being here who is using force, power, coercion, those methods. Those are not God's methods. God's methods are truth and love. And God won the great controversy through using the methods of truth and love and goodness. And we just consider things like, why is this important? I was so frustrated when 9-11 happened and for weeks and weeks after on talk shows on the radio and on TV, the question was asked, where was God? And I never heard an answer uh, that was anywhere close to being satisfying because Again, I think we can only begin to understand these things when we have incorporated this great controversy. We just imagine, just like we talked about uh, Satan going down a wrong path and how God intervened. Uh, let's just imagine uh, one of those hijackers and we consider uh, that uh, individual being born as a baby boy and God knew he was surrounded perhaps by a very bad influence, family, friends, and people that uh, were continually forcing him to have a warped picture of God. Do we think that God intervened, tried to intervene in the life of that individual? Was he continually trying to reach him with the truth, with a different picture of how things were? I, I think all of the energies of heaven are poured out on each individual person on this planet. Okay, but God uh, was not successful. I mean, just imagine, how could God, let's say the individual decided to come to the United States and God would say, nope, you're not free can't come over here. I, I restrict your freedom to do that. Or he comes over and maybe he wants to sign up with one of these air flight schools. And for whatever reason, he signs up for a hundred and every time an angel miraculously comes down and prevents him from joining that school. I mean, does God block freedom at every opportunity so that nothing bad ever happens? Or when he gets on the plane, uh, should God have caused the plane to swerve around the building to prevent the results of his own free will rebellious choice or should God have intervened to make sure that only bad people got on the planes on those days and uh, earth's history reveals that good people always live to be 120 
Bad people die in plane crashes and car wrecks and bad people get sick. I mean, can you see how if God is going to intervene in this way, then eventually all freedom will be lost. We will all be in one giant prison with padded cells, uh, not able to even stub our toe to hurt ourselves. I mean, God has given us freedom and that freedom we have abused and in our separated condition from God, we live in this world that is a total mess. Okay? But uh, this brings us to our mission. What is our mission? If that is the problem, okay, complete misunderstanding about who our God is and the world by and large does not trust God. What is our mission as Christians? Is it not to go about vindicating the kind of person that our God is in character? And um, I think this is so critical Uh, We tend not to emphasize sometimes these verses. I wanted to talk about this one last time when we uh, did Galatians. The book of Galatians ends this way. Paul would say, it does not matter at all whether or not one is circumcised. What does matter is, now how would you finish this verse? There's what matters. What matters is this. Well, here's what Paul would say. What matters, what really matters is being a new creature. Okay, um, the plan of salvation. I mean, you can hear the word in that, to salve, healing. plan of salvation is the plan of healing. Um, my wife, uh, Dorothy, who's from Germany and speaks French, it's so helpful for me to hear insights into where these words come from, that um, even the name Savior means really the healer. Okay, and uh, we get threatened with this because we think, oh, it's perfectionism. No, this has nothing to do with earning our way to heaven. But uh, we are meant to change as a result of coming into a relationship with God. Okay, let's just, these, these verses are, are so incredible, they don't even need commentary. Just listen to the words of Paul on this in Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. I ask God from the wealth of his glory to give you power through his spirit to be strong in your inner selves. And I pray that Christ will make his home in your hearts through faith, through trust. I pray that you may have your roots and foundation in love so that you, together with all God's people, may have the power to understand how broad and long, how high and deep is Christ's love. Yes, may you come to know his love. What's the result of that? Although it can never be fully known and so be completely filled with the very nature, the very character of God. We are meant to change. By beholding God, we become changed into his image. It's unavoidable. Be always humble. Be always humble, gentle, and patient. Show your love by being tolerant with one another. Do your best to preserve the unity which the Spirit gives by means of the peace that binds you together. Be always humble, gentle, patient. Show your love by being tolerant with one another. Okay, and in doing so, I mean, the, the good news message is really not preached from a pulpit. I mean, that's a, that's a relatively ineffective way. I mean, it's important that we understand the truth, okay? But if we are not living somewhat like Christ, then really the message will not spread. It is by living it out that people become attracted to the message. Since then, we do not have the excuse of ignorance. Everything, and I do mean everything, connected with that old way of life has to go. It's rotten through and through. Get rid of it. And then take on an entirely new way of life, a God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. We shouldn't be threatened by this. 
Again, God is not saying, uh, you know, it's really, it's a promise, okay, that it is a natural consequence. Just think of the thief on the cross. What good things did he do? All he did was to trust Jesus. Hey, we are saved by trusting in Jesus. Well, there we go again. Saved, healed. We're also healed by trusting in Jesus. Okay, so since you are God's dear children, you must try to be like him. There's nothing wrong with putting effort into being like God. As long as we don't perceive, it will become a Pharisee if we begin to make lists and uh, trying to keep all of the rules. Okay, but be imitators of Christ. Your life must be controlled by love, just as Christ loved us. Your life in Christ makes you strong, and his love comforts you. You have fellowship with the Spirit, and you have kindness and compassion for one another. I urge you then to make me completely happy by having the same thoughts, sharing the same love, and being one in soul and mind. Don't do anything from selfish ambition. Boy, that is a hard one. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or from a cheap desire to boast, but be humble. There it is again. Be humble toward one another, always considering others better than yourselves. Now, is that a challenge for any of you? Always considering others better than yourselves? Can you imagine living in a world where everyone considered others better than themselves? And look out for one another's interests, not just for your own. The attitude you should have is the one that Christ Jesus had. And notice there's uh, a colon here because he is now going to describe the attitude of Christ Jesus. You want to know what love is? Hey, God, Jesus is love personified. This is the attitude of Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying is be like this, what I'm about to describe. He always had the nature of God, but he did not think that by force he should try to remain equal with God. Instead of this, He, of his own free will, gave up all he had and took the nature of a servant. He became like a human being and appeared in human likeness. He was humble. You know, who's Jesus? He's fully God. Is God humble? Yes, he was humble and walked the path of obedience all the way to death, his death on the cross. And what Paul is saying is, be like that. Okay, we're Christians, we're followers of Christ, Uh, We will imitate Christ in every way. And Christ, in his infinite condescension, becoming a servant, dying, Paul is saying, that's the example. Be like that. You are the people of God. He loved you and chose you for his own. So then you must close yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility. How many times does humility come up? Gentleness and patience. Be tolerant with one another. And forgive one another when, whenever any one of you has a complaint against someone else. You must forgive one another just as the Lord has forgiven you. And to all these qualities add love, which binds all things together in perfect unity. So Jesus' final command to Christians was one command, just one thing. And now I give you a new command love one another. And of course, this wasn't a new command. You find it all the way through the Bible. It's just that we have never done it. So Christ says, hey, I'm going back up to heaven now. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Just do this one thing, would you? Uh, Love one another. And um, I don't know how many of you have seen this book. It's called Unchristian. And uh, the author here, Kinnaman, it's a survey of people's attitudes towards Christians, among other things. And uh, it's quite shocking Uh, to see that the label Christian is not positive in this country. 
And uh, when we think about, uh, here were the most common things that came up. When people perceived, what do they associate with Christian? And here were the words, judgmental, hypocritical, anti-homosexual, too involved in politics, insensitive to others. Now, it's, it's rather sad that the reputation of Christians would seem to be completely contrary to the reputation of Christ. Judgmental? I mean, if we were just to list all the verses, do not judge others, do not judge others, do not judge others, I mean, we get a mile high. Okay, unfortunately, we are known as people who judge others. Hypocritical, anti-homosexual. Uh, we've mentioned that uh, kind of a parallel to this in Jesus' day, the lepers were very much viewed as completely uh, social outcasts. Okay, would you say that Jesus was anti-leper? Okay, no. I mean, uh, again, our job is not to be moral authority. Our job is to love and to serve and to represent Jesus Christ. Too involved in politics? How involved was Jesus in politics? Okay, my kingdom is not of this world. Insensitive to others? Okay, would you say that Jesus was sensitive to others? So, again, this uh, very unfortunate, kind of coming back to Ezekiel, you've misrepresented my character. And uh, I thought of a few examples here. Um, not too long ago, I, uh, you know, normally I'm with my family here. We go out to eat and you're kind of absorbed in what's going on around the table with the kids and so on. But uh, uh, this was an opportunity where I just uh, went to a restaurant. I had to take a, an examination and um, I sat next to a table and there were four ladies next to me. And I just uh, kind of just spent the whole evening uh, listening to their conversation, which was interesting. But uh, a man walked into the restaurant. He was overweight and uh, they made a joke. Look at that guy over there. And they spent several minutes talking about the man who was overweight. And then the whole rest of the conversation was judging, condemning, criticizing friends, workers, co-workers, family. And uh, it was, uh, they were laughing and having just the best time uh, imaginable discussing everyone and putting everyone down. Okay, why is that so natural for us to do that? Um, when we put others down, how do we feel about ourselves at that moment? We are really putting ourselves up a little bit. It restores our own self-esteem just a little bit. So we naturally become rather judgmental, critical people. Um, at our conference here last weekend, Greg Boyd was talking about how he was sitting in a mall. And all of a sudden, he became awakened to the voice in his head. And the voice in his head was everyone that walked by a commentary about that individual. Okay, it didn't look quite right. Uh, there's a couple, they don't really fit well together. And all of a sudden, he said he felt like he just heard the voice of God saying, you know what, Greg, uh, I did not call you to be the moral judge and authority of everyone around you. And it suddenly made sense. You know what, I mean, listen to your thoughts sometime and, and uh, how we so often think about others in a negative light. That's not our job as Christians. Um, I thought of something else. Uh, this is a while ago. There's a, I don't know if any of you, this is a, not the actual place, but there's a place called the Bagel Peddler in Redlands. And we like to go there and get bagels all the time. It's uh, um, Anyway, just kind of uh, something we like to do. And on this weekend morning, uh, I arrived. We were in a great rush. We had to do a lot of things. And they take cash only. Okay, so I have about $2 in my pocket. So that I'm just thinking to drive all the way to Bank of America, get cash, come all the way back. It's going to take too long. And so I realized that two doors down there is a liquor store. Not this one, but another liquor store. And this liquor store has an ATM. And uh, so here's the dilemma. I mean, there are about, uh, what, 180 medical students per year times four, which means there are a lot of you who know me uh, driving around in this area. And um, so what do I do? Well, I ran into the liquor store and I got some cash. 
And I came out, and wouldn't you know it, a medical student in a red pickup, hi, Dr. Cole, wrote that, you know. And uh, I just thought at the time, uh, it doesn't look good to come out of a liquor store at 7 in the morning, you know. Uh, so here's, the, here's the, uh, the question, though, and how it applies. Um, I mean, Christians should be known as the people who do not judge and condemn others. We should be known as the people who have to put the best possible interpretation on the actions of others. Can I trust that medical student, you know, with, with my reputation? Maybe I tell the story so that the word, you know, gets out. But, um, but um, anyway, when we judge and com- condemn others, I love this verse, it boomerangs. Every time you criticize someone, you condemn yourself. It really is the, the easiest way to destroy your own character. And Jesus would say, don't pick on people. Jump on their failures. Criticize their faults. Unless, of course, you want the same treatment. Don't condemn those who are down. That hardness can boomerang. It's a natural consequence. Be easy on people. You'll find life a lot easier. Give away your life. You'll find life given back, but not merely given back. Given back with bonus and blessing. Giving, not getting, is the way. Generosity begets generosity. And so our last verse here, coming back here, i just, just add on. Jesus would say, I give you a new command, love one another. But here's the secret. How do we know what love is? Here it is. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Okay, it is love that awakens love. God came to show us that we are loved, even in our sinful state, and it is that love that is healing and transforming. Let's pray. Father, please help each one of us to open our eyes to see the larger picture of things, uh, this great controversy over your character. May we join with all those who are trying to speak what is right of you. May we represent you in our words and actions that others may come to see you as good and entirely worthy of our trust. Amen.